Yeah, so I often say that the biggest crime that has been committed to the greater Inglewood community, to the South and West Sides, have been disinvested. And here we are 70 years later when our uh, forefathers and mothers, right, when our ancestors, uh, when they migrated from the South, and they landed in either Greater Inglewood or in Lawndale and Austin. You know, either you got off on that train, the South Side train, or the West Side trade from down South. But how there is 70 years later that the practices are still the same, not necessarily uh, the discriminatory land sale, but how Black people are still not financially prepared for an opportunity at home ownership, that we're still having this conversation 70 years later. I'm Tonika Lewis-Johnson, and I am a social justice artist, photographer, and the National Public Housing Museum's 2021 Artist is Instigator. And I'm Tiff Beatty, and I am the Program Director of Arts, Culture, and Public Policy at the National Public Housing Museum. And this is Legally Stolen. Tanika, this is episode two. Can you believe it? It's crazy. I am so happy that we made it to episode two, be able to share more with everyone about the project. Yeah, this is a big one too. It's going to get deep, y'all. Strap yourselves in. Tanika, Legally Stolen is a deep dive into your project, Inequity for Sale, which you're piloting as a part of your residency with the museum. For those who missed episode one, remind us, what is Inequity for Sale? Inequity for Sale is a virtual and physical exploration of homes that were sold on land sale contracts. It takes us back to the 1950s and 60s and demonstrates how legalized theft in the past directly contributes to present-day inequity in Black communities. Right, and you're currently installing landmarks in front of 10 to 15 of these homes in Chicago's Greater Inglewood. Through Inequity for Sale, you're memorializing these homes by telling the story of this tragic Chicago history, and you're connecting that to the present. Yes, I want people to literally understand what structural racism is and how it bred inequity in Black neighborhoods today. Right. As we established in episode one, you were born and raised in Chicago's Inglewood and still live in the community. In fact, one of your landmarkers is currently installed in front of your Inglewood home as a weather test. Yes, it has survived half of Chicago's winter and it's been a nice, brutal test. So it's going (laughs) strong and it's holding up. So I definitely think it has the staying power. So true. It has been a crazy winter, so it's been perfect, really. And a virtual prototype, including an interactive map, is also live now at inequityforsale.com. Yes, this was a big one. Um, I really wanted to have people be able to know about all of the other land sale contract homes. And of course, this podcast is another way to experience the project. In the first episode, we started with the history and the research that sparked my idea for the project. Right. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, we recommend you check that out first and then meet us back here when you're done. 
And in the final episode, which will debut in uh, late February, early March, something like that. (laughs) That works. (laughs) We'll focus on potential solutions, remedies, and even make our case for reparations and redress. That's right. I'm super excited to have that conversation in our final episode. But first, it's important to ground ourselves in the reality of where we are today. In this episode, we take listeners on a journey through present-day Greater Inglewood. Of course, we discussed home ownership and wealth inequality. We also explore home as a lens to see other critical aspects of life in Inglewood, touching on family, schools, jobs, local businesses, and more. For this episode, we talked to Inglewood residents, including an alderman. And if you're not familiar with it, what an alderman is, we'll explain more about what that is shortly. But first, we want to begin with a few voices you may remember from episode one. Like Burl Satter, historian and author of Family Properties, Race, Real Estate, and the Exploitation of Black Urban America. In this clip, Satter reminds us how wealth was legally stolen from Black people and communities through land sale contracts in the 50s and 60s. You know, one of the tragic aspects of the whole land contract situation was that the people who first moved into a neighborhood like Lawndale or Englewood, they were striving middle class African-Americans. They were leaving the Black Belt and trying to go to a place where there was more space and better schools and better housing stock. And so they were moving there with a lot of optimism. and paying top dollar for these properties. So the idea, I think the myth today is that, well, these neighborhoods are poor because poor people live there, poor people have always lived there, and that explains it. We don't need to go any further, you know? Whereas in fact, wealth was in these communities and was taken out of these communities very systematically through the process of predatory land installment contracts which was draining you know, month after month, family by family, massive amounts of money over decades as people tried to hold on to their properties. Yeah, this, this is exactly why I'm doing the project and we want people to understand how this impacted the entire city and our country today. Right. Like people like to assume that especially poor black communities, they are poor because it's their fault or it's something that they did wrong. But it's very clear, as as Beryl Satter points out, that this was systemic. This was a part of a history that we have to acknowledge that these these communities were taken advantage of. Yeah. And it is truth telling. It is correcting a lie that has been perpetuated. These Black communities did not start off poor. And that's important for everyone to know, people in the communities today and the larger public. We also brought back Richard Rothstein, author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. As Rothstein points out, these practices backed by government policies are the primary reason for wealth inequality today. Uh, The result is that today, African-Americans have 60% of the income of whites on average family incomes, but have only about 5% of the wealth 
that white households have. And you'd think that if you had a 60% income ratio, you'd have a 60% wealth ratio as well. But that enormous difference between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to this policy required by the federal government in most places and implemented also by banks of uh, refusing to issue conventional mortgages to African-Americans in neighborhoods like Englewood. African-Americans have 60% of the income of whites and only 5% of the wealth. 60% of the income is bad enough, but 5% of the wealth, that's just inexcusable. It is. And the only reason that is the case is because it was supported by federal government and policies. Now, let's talk about Inglewood more specifically. As we mentioned, we talked to a local alderman, and I'll just say briefly because I didn't understand at first because I'm not originally from Chicago. An alderman, or sometimes called an alder person, is an elected member of the city council. Each alder person represents one of Chicago's 50 wards. And some neighborhoods, like Greater Inglewood, although we're one neighborhood, <laughs> are spread across multiple wards. Wards can represent all or parts of many different neighborhoods or community areas. Right. Stephanie Coleman, who we talked to, is the alderman of the 16th Ward, which includes parts of Inglewood, as well as parts of Chicago Lawn, Gage Park, New City, and Back of the Yards. Though, of course, Inglewood is her favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, and yes, she loves Inglewood, um, but at the same time, it breaks her heart. I call Inglewood the, the heartbeat of the city because we are centrally located in the middle of everything. We are 15 minutes away from downtown Chicago, but we're also 12 minutes away from Midway Airport. So if you're coming or going, entering or exiting the city of Chicago, at one point, you've got to stop in Inglewood. And this is a community that I love. So many generations. Our housing stock is absolutely beautiful. But there's such a rich culture of pride, of family, of unity, of excellence. I think we have a home ownership rate of about 20%. I've got over, I've got thousands of beautiful brick, masonry, single family, multi-unit homes that were once homes to families. And sometimes going on blocks, knowing that families live there, it breaks my heart. Coleman points out the low home ownership rate today, which is sadly the byproduct of land sale contracts in the 50s and 60s. And this is what we must have some accountability for. Here's Alderman Coleman again, connecting that history to the present. Yeah, so I often say that the biggest crime that has been committed to um, the greater Inglewood community, to the South and West sides have been disinvestment. And here we are 70 years later when our uh, forefathers and mothers, right, when our ancestors, uh, when they migrated from the South and they landed in either Greater Inglewood or in Lawndale and Austin, you know, either you got off on that train, the South Side train or the West Side trade from down South. 
but how there is 70 years later that the practices are still the same. Um, not necessarily uh, the discriminatory land sale, but how Black people are still not financially are prepared for an opportunity at home ownership, that we're still having this conversation 70 years later. Wow. Okay. So Alderman Coleman is connecting the history to the present. She's reminding us that this history did not stop with land sale contracts, this history of discrimination, of the wealth gap that is a byproduct of land sale contracts and and redlining is maintained today because these practices are still happening. Yes, and not only are they still happening, it has contributed to the devaluation of the neighborhood and why stores, franchises, developers don't invest here. Right. And it starts with homes. It starts with the fact that Black residents in neighborhoods like Inglewood cannot still to this day build wealth through home ownership. Inglewood resident and homeowner Lolita Hughes can testify to this. In her interview with the museum's oral history corps, Lolita talks about Inglewood today her plans to pay off her home and the lessons she's learned along the way. You know, it's vacant lots all over. It's banded buildings all over. It's just like, who cares? It's like nobody cares. And then, so you get so used to just like going past, you know, somebody got a real nice house and right next door on the north of them or the south of them, whatever, is two abandoned houses. How do you live like that? And that's all on this block. That's all you see. You go down to 69th Street, you know, there's a nice house right there, but it's an abandoned building right here. So then what your property is valued at? I tried to refinance this house, not to take money out of it, but just because my interest rate is 6.5. And uh, and they had, I had to pay the appraiser to come out here over here and I paid them $400, right? And uh, But if it, 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 they value this house so low and then they was going, somehow they was going to give me, I said, oh no, I said, I've been in this house for 10 years. And then I'm, you want me to start back over with a 30-year mortgage? So I lose that 10 years. So first of all, I, I didn't know how to buy a house. I bought this house for too much. Because they gave me $40,000 grandma. They made this house. They priced it $198,000, which was way too much money for this house. Right. And uh, I'm like, okay. And then, uh, so I said, oh. even then, I've been in this house for 14 years. It don't seem like that mortgage went anywhere. So I calculate, say, on average, my mortgage is $1,400. So on average, I'm going to say $1,100. I took $1,100. I say, Tam. 12 times of 14 years I've been here, which is almost 200,000. That's a lot of money for me to still have a hundred thousand dollars. And that's the interest, right? And I said, okay, so now my thing is don't even fight with them. And I just, my kids got grown. I just stopped buying frivolous stuff and just started saving, 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 right? February 2023, I'm gonna get them. Hopefully I had the other half to pay the house off. And then so a guy said, well, don't pay your house off. I'm like, well, why not? You think I just want to keep giving them money? I don't get, I'm telling you, I don't get them almost $200,000 for this house. That's not even worth $50,000. I'm like, <laughs> it, it, it's crazy. And, and it's just the interest rate. So I knew that 6.5 was a high interest rate, but it, it didn't come to me until 10 years into this house. That's really crazy um, because this is really the predicament that. Black homeowners in cities like Chicago, specifically neighborhoods like Greater Inglewood, um, are facing. They have homes that they've invested in, but it won't appreciate 
So you you can't gain any wealth because of the appreciation is is not happening. And the appreciation of the home isn't happening because of everything Lolita mentioned, the vacant lots, the lack of amenities, all of that stemming from the downward spiral of investment in the neighborhood from the 50s and 60s. So it's it's just a horrible cycle of inequitable wealth distribution, and it doesn't enable people or Black people to want to own a home in Black neighborhoods because you have to already understand you're not going to gain wealth through it. You just live in the home and, and, and that's it. It can't be a wealth builder for you. Another resident of Inglewood interviewed by the MPHM Oral History Corps is Patricia Porter. Patricia moved to Inglewood in the early 80s, thanks to a new program developed under the leadership of Mayor Jane Byrne and supported by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, also known as HUD. HUD's Dollar Homes Initiative helps local governments to foster housing opportunities for low to moderate income families and address specific community needs by offering them the opportunity to purchase qualified HUD-owned homes for a dollar each. They had this uh, program called the Homestead Program, in which you could apply to get a house. And it was a lottery that was drawn. And through that lottery, I was able to win my house. You fill out the uh, paperwork that they sent you, and then they entered your name into this lottery. And I was happened to be at work at Blue Cross Blue Shield, and I got the call because I had sent my mother and sister to rep- represent me. And they called and said, Pat, you won, you won. I said, what? I'm still hollering, screaming uh, at the work. I want a house, I want the house. <laughs> so that was how I really uh, obtained the house that I'm still living in right now. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> a whole house. She won a whole house. That's like the dollar large lot program today. Uh, but of course, that's not the end of the story. They said, uh, what did you get your house for? I said, I got it for a dollar. They said, you're kidding. I said, no, I got the house for a dollar. But then they, they allow you to rehab and you know, take loans to rehab and, uh, you know, remodel and things like that. So that's when you established a mortgage on my house when I did the remodeling. But if I knew that what I know today, you learn from that, taking out loans against your house and how you can get some unfair mortgage people to, uh, you know, cause this problem and refinances and stuff. Because like even as of today, I was trying to refinance and they told me that I didn't qualify because I'm a, what they call upside down in my mortgage where I'm paying more money than what my house is worth, which was very disappointing. I'm still on like, let's say like $130,000. And they are like saying now, but with the uh, neighborhood and all, they probably say my house is only worth 65000 
So that's why they say I'm paying more money than what my house is worth. It's frustrating. It's the same story. Even though she won her house, she's paying more than her house is worth. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. The consistent barriers. Um, like like you said, you win a house and, and you still can't get ahead. I think about some of the bad loans I've gotten, you know, even with Nationwide, you know, how things they tried to do to me and how, you know, I had to uh, investigate and try to look around to find a better lender that was a supporter with our race and knowing that we do have a right to being justified in our homes and safe in homes and knowing that it would be our property that we could pass it on to our children and their children's children instead of being taken advantage of and giving them money that they're not even looking at our well-being. It's all about making their pockets fat. So one really fun fact that we found out in doing these interviews with Inglewood residents is they both actually are former public housing residents. And of course, at the Public Housing Museum, we we're really excited to talk to them about their public housing experience. Patricia came to Inglewood from the Robert Taylor Homes. Robert Taylor was a public housing project in Bronzeville, a neighborhood on the south side, just north of Inglewood. From the early 90s through 2007, Robert Taylor's 28 16-story high-rise buildings were demolished as part of the city's so-called plan for transformation, in which it was proposed to replace housing developments like the Robert Taylor Homes with mixed-income communities. In recalling her move to Inglewood, Patricia talks about how she thought she was moving to a better place to raise her kids. Then you come over to Inglewood and, you know, it used to be nice, but now you find all these uh, abandoned buildings and debris and people without jobs and the drugs and stuff in and then they close out a lot of our schools in our neighborhoods. And, you know, it's not the same anymore. The, uh, the value of things have gone down and people are even leaving the uh, inner city now because of the violence, the shooting. And uh, my son was killed in 2016 in Inglewood. Coming home from work and he was ambushed, him and his worker. And he was shot 17 times and his worker was shot 11, but his worker lived and my son, he didn't make it. So you just think about coming from Robert Taylor to think you coming from a better place for your kids to grow up. And then they still get killed in the area and it's still going on, the violence, the gang banging. But, you know, it hurts my heart. They think because we're black, all of our things is Oh, he must have been in the game, but I told him my son was not in no game. My son worked. And then the police came to try to apologize for putting that out. Because in England, they think everybody who get killed. Oh, they, they was, it's gang related. It's gang related. No, it's not. It's not gang related. People's trying to live their lives and make, uh, make a life even for their own kids. Then my grandson to see his father get killed in front of his face, you know, that hurts too. And we just celebrated his birthday 
August the 9th, Monday. Oh my God, that's, that's just devastating. The downward spiral of, of disinvestment eventually becomes crime and violence. And to hear her story really just kind of brings, brings that fact to life. Yeah. Well, Lita Hughes has also witnessed violence in Inglewood, and she agrees with you, Tanika. The root of the problem is disinvestment. Inglewood is in the news. It, it makes me cringe when something happened, and I'm like, God, please don't let it be in Inglewood. And and and, and so if it is, like, oh, like they had a mass shooting over there on six or something, and I was going to work and got saved, the alert on my phone, and I'm like two blocks away from this face. I'm like, oh my God. And then they had another mass shooting. And it, it happens, right? But there's still a lot of good over here. And, and sometimes it just takes people to invest. Patricia also identified disinvestment as being a root of the problem. Well, the cause of that is that no one is investing on the south side as either would have been on the north side or the east side. I mean, you look at Inglewood, you know, who's, where are the stores? Where are the uh, uh, businesses? Where are the jobs? And I can say, where are the schools? Because if they closed like 50 schools out and uh, main of them, it was in our neighborhoods. Then they want to crowd all the kids up in one school. We don't have stores where we can get uh, fresh meat fresh vegetables. I mean, they would give us the uh, the uh, day-old or uh, year-old food. I mean, we had to close down the store in our neighborhood that was selling a uh, year-old food, rotten meat. But they knew about this. But yet still, we think that we're supposed to accept stuff like this. I mean, it's hard that we don't have good stores in our neighborhood. I mean, Good store right where I live at right now, there is no good food store here. You got to go out, either out your neighborhood or several miles away to find a grocery store or fresh products for your family. And they know this. What Patricia is talking about with there not being any good grocery stores in the neighborhood This is a term that most people are familiar with by now, but it's called a food desert. And Inglewood and many other South and West Side neighborhoods in Chicago are known to be food deserts. And during the pandemic, this even, you know, got worse. And it's a systemic issue as well. Yeah, and I think her sharing that story alludes to the the bigger force that is controlling how residents are continually being taken advantage of. Exactly. And Tanika, I know you heard it too. Patricia refers to a they. She says several times, they know, they know this. Who do you think she's referring to here? Who is they? Well, I I think the they that she's referring to is the they that we discovered decades later about land sale contracts the the greedy capitalist people whether they're um, speculators or real estate um, agents in cahoots with elected officials 
and people in government. And so, you know, that pairing creates the they, you know, because because it changes, you know, people feel different positions, but the structure of it, the entities, the banking sector, the governmental sector, the real estate sector are all together. And, and, And I believe that's that's the they she's referring to that we refer to. It's the larger presence and entity that controls how neighborhoods are developed, look, and or forgotten about. Mm, Yes. She also uses we. And she's talking about Inglewood residents, but she's also talking about Black communities more broadly. Because of this history of disinvestment, when there is investment in Black communities, it's met with suspicion. Well, they put the whole fools there, but how many of us actually catered to them or go there? I mean, they talk about Whole Foods. How many of them can actually afford Whole Foods? I mean, a lot of us in Englewood, they're on set incomes. A lot of things that they provide over there is not actually benefiting the neighborhood. I mean, that's only the Whole food, but then down there you have, uh, what, Aldi's. And we used to have a jewel, but they tore that down to make the stores over there for Whole Foods and the other small stores and Starbucks and you know, stores like that over there now. Tanika, I know you have some thoughts on this subject. And I can't wait to hear your view on the Whole Foods on 63rd <laughs> and Halstead. <laughs> but, yes, first, let's, <laughs> yeah, but first, let's uh, hear from Lolita. She also mentions the Whole Food with a bit of suspicion. So they put a Whole Food up there. Most people don't go on whole food over here. You know, it would, it would have been better if it was a Jewels over there or if it was a Mariano or something that's affordable and they got food that we'd like or that we could eat and we is enough to stretch to feed your family. And and so I, I go in that whole food maybe once or maybe once a month I go over there. And uh it's never hardly any people over there. But I don't know if that's a sign that the neighborhood is changing and is it changing who is it changing for? I mean Either way, it's going to look suspicious because the neighborhood is poor, period. Poor in the sense of it's been disinvested in the 20 percent home ownership rate is mostly renters don't have. You know, it's going to look suspicious regardless. Um, I, I think it was probably going to look suspicious even if it was Mariano's. Like, I just think anything being built. <laughs> but the fact that it was a Whole Foods did seem like crazy. But the reason is... Um, we had a jewel. It left. Mm-hmm. It left. <laughs> it didn't care. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Mariano's is not coming here. <laughs> mm-hmm. It could. It just got to Bronzeville. Uh-huh. Bronzeville been rich. Uh-huh. So, you know, I get the suspicion, but really, you know, what we have to understand is there are certain businesses not interested in even investing in Inglewood. Yeah, she makes a good point about affordability. However, um, the Whole Foods was was more for an investment symbolism than anything else. You know, if Whole Foods hadn't decided 
to build a store there um, that Starbucks wouldn't have come, that Chipotle wouldn't have come, the um, wings around the world that's over there, that wouldn't have come. So it's it, it's also kind of a conundrum in itself because mm-hmm. when disinvested neighborhoods see investment like that, which we want, but when they mm-hmm. see something like a Whole Foods that's not historically in Black neighborhoods, of course it raises suspicion. Like, okay, yeah. hold on. Um, the the they, like, what are they doing? Who are they building this for? Um, but at the same time, uh, the neighborhood needs those kinds of stores and, and, and investments and amenities to increase the value of the neighborhood. So, you know, I like Whole Foods. Um, <laughs> I, I go there. I was happy when it came because, yeah. you know, there are uh, there's produce and certain types of things that I like to get from there that, mm-hmm. that I can't really get anywhere else because of the disinvestment. There's no other stores available, but I can understand totally how it looks suspicious. Um, but that's the space that we're in as a result of this historic disinvestment. Right, right. It's like this this investment is economic, but it's also psychological. It it represents something bigger. Yeah, it it reminds people that they don't control what's happening to their neighborhood um, mm. or that you know they have to put a lot of effort in to find out how their neighborhood is changing. Mm. And, you know, that's, yeah, that's just unfortunate that we're in this situation. Yeah, it's true. But the Whole Foods isn't the only thing that looks suspicious to Lolita, at least. She's noticing a rise in the price of land in Inglewood. I inquired about a vacant lot. Today, the lady called me back. She said, well, we want $15,000. I said, for a vacant lot? You know, and the city was selling for a dollar. So for them to have lots to go up like that, something is going on that I don't know about. See, she mentions it right there. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that that feeling of, OK, who is changing my neighborhood and for what? So, yeah. yeah. Right. And well, Lita may not know, but the real estate speculators know something. Patricia talks about how she's constantly being approached by people who want to buy her home. People like Donnie, they try to take advantage of you. And now all of a sudden, you know, they knowing that uh, things are getting kind of hard in an Inglewood neighborhood. And now they come coming around now. Uh, Do you want to buy or sell your house? You want to sell your house? I said, I never put anything that or advertised I wanted to sell my house. Why are you all calling me? Why are y'all knocked on my door? <laughs> She's got no intention to sell. <laughs> <laughs> no, Inglewood is home for her. And as she said before, you know, like her, the value of her property doesn't even make sense for her to mm. sell. She she just wants to live there and, and that's it. Leave her alone. <laughs> right, right. Lolita had something similar to say about living in Inglewood. The other. They said, well, why are you living in Inglewood? Well, what do you think I should live in? Tell me. 
You know, if if, if I take my hundred thousand dollars and and move on the north side, would that make your life any better? So I can keep my money right here and let people see that I can clean up outside of my house because I'm a homeowner. You know, Lolita's uh, in saying she's a homeowner. You know, she's right. Um, there is a big difference between a neighborhood that's predominantly homeowners and a neighborhood that's predominantly renters. And as we established earlier, uh, Inglewood has a home ownership rate of about twenty percent. And that's also part of the story. Also, regardless if people are homeowners or renters, people are living here and deserve to have amenities that help raise their quality of life. I mean, you remind me of something we like to say at the National Public Housing Museum, which is that everyone has a right to a place to call home. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's true. That's true. And I think Lolita and Patricia's stories really represent the fact that people should be able to live where they've chosen to live and, and they shouldn't have to move. But it's it's also encouraging to hear folks um, who, despite the problems, despite, you know, the, the history and the disinvestment that folks, you know, have made a home and they have made friendships with their neighbors and built block clubs. And, you know, a lot of famous people have actually come from Inglewood and Patricia talks about this. Right. It's a lot of good in Inglewood. A lot of good people came out of Inglewood. Movie stars, uh, uh, actors, singers, even Shaka Khan used to stay in Inglewood. And it's so many of people like Lolita, Patricia, myself in Inglewood. And it's unfortunate that um, the larger public doesn't doesn't believe it. But yeah. we're here. We're strong and <laughs> we're fighting against um, all of the systemic inequities our neighborhood faces by by telling our stories. That's beautiful. Uh, Lolita says something similar to sort of wrap this up. I'm going to play her clip. So it's it's good at Inglewood. You just got to search for it. It's, it's like a, a diamond in the rough. And so it's rough right now, but it, look, it, it'll come out on top. Or we'll come out on top. So in the next episode, we'll focus on potential solutions, remedies, and even make our case for reparations and redress. Thanks for joining us. And yes, thank you for joining <laughs> us for episode two. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of Legally Stolen. Until then, visit us at inequityforsale.com and follow us on Instagram at inequityforsale. Legally Stolen is produced at the National Public Housing Museum and is made possible by generous support from the City of Chicago's Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Kresge Foundation, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, Landau Family Foundation, Illinois Humanities, the MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at Prince, and the National Endowment for the Arts. This episode was engineered by Seth Engel. Our beats are produced by Rob Smooth, and we'd like to give a huge thanks to our guests, Beryl Satter, Richard Rothstein, Alderman Stephanie Coleman, Patricia Porter and Alita Hughes for their contributions to this episode. And finally, 
Special shout out to our Inequity for Sale collaborators, including Paula Aguirre, Janelle Nelson, Andres Lemos-Spont, Bruce Orenstein, Lauren Miranda, Olivia Cunningham, and all of the staff at the National Public Housing Museum and interns from Roosevelt University's Policy Research Collaborative.